Welcome to Making Waves, a radio program about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. Hi, I'm Michael Palumbo from NASA, and I'm the guest host of Making Waves for this summer. Coming up later on today's program, we'll talk to Montreal composer Stephanie Moore, who will be performing her three-movement work, Lunar Cycle, on August 22nd as part of our Sound Travels Festival during the Toronto International Literature Acoustic Symposium. But first, Peter Bosch, one half of Dutch duo Bosch and Simone, called me from Spain to discuss their installation, Merlitones. Merlitones, which will be part of the Sound Travels Festival, will be installed at the NASA space beginning August 19th. All right, let's go to my conversation with Peter Bosch. Most of our works are, are some, some are, don't change much, although mm. you can always change your software, like in this space, this cannot be that slow or that fast, or uh, sometimes you, we can change objects because in most of our works, we work with vibration and, and sounding objects because they hit each other, mm-hmm. uh, like glass or objects that are shaking in boxes. And then, of course, you can adapt by putting the, the, the piece in a different way in space or, cha- or put more or less material or work on the software. And often we, we change, we keep on changing, or maybe after a few years we say, well, this is great. We maybe do some little adaptions for each new place where we put the work, but the software the, we don't touch anymore. Mm-hmm. But you could say that almost all our works are modular in a way that they have, have several elements um, that you can hang in a different way or put up in a different way or you can put more or less so you can always adapt to certain to a certain amount to a space where you're in i mean if we would be in a very high space we would definitely use much longer pipes than we will do now in toronto that's i mean that's exciting but usually not possible you know as you're preparing to come to nasa uh for august what do you leave up to chance and what are you prepared for if you don't mind my asking well, of course, for this work, it's important to know how how long you can go with the pipes. I mean, so I know that uh, the the space uh, doesn't have a flat uh, ceiling, so that there's an area where we can hang longer pipes, and 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 other parts we will hang the sh- shorter pipes. And it's good to have to know some things about the properties of the space, and also the pipes they are going to buy, because if you buy units of three meters or four or five, this right. gives also different possibilities. But uh, I, I, I want to calculate already the length of pipes before being in the space. We could go further and and measure resonances of the space and adapt the length of the, spa- the, the pipes to that. But um, usually we, we don't take very much care about uh, tonality and it's it's very in this work what we search is really uh, complex sounds so mm. what you it's more attractive to not tune the uh, the membrane on the length of the pipe than tune it on the length of the pipe because it's much nicer if you get this this strange sounds that tend to choose between different frequencies mm. and then with several pipes and if you have more or less air going through then you will get different mixes of different partials and things like that we always we are very much interested in complex timbers maybe things like different stones and this kind of things that normally in tonal music are not wanted that's often Hmm. our interest right so we we 
and then on the spot we work on it until until we think this sounds great. And you can do really a lot with with tuning uh, with scaling the valves, like what is the minimum amount of air and the maximum tensioning the membranes. And so, so we always, with any work, we always have to do a lot of work on the spot, but those things you can even not predict. So once we have the pipes, we will hang them. And then in a way that you think this will work uh, spatially interesting. So something like in, 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 uh, in Australia, it was a kind of circle and, and the deck chairs in the middle can be different here. This we decide usually on the spot. It's not that we need all the details and the 3D uh, representation of the space and then carefully uh, draw exactly where the pipes will, will hang. Well, that's that, not necessary. Well, see, that's that's what I was very curious about as well. Uh, as, I, as I see other images online, uh, the photos, uh, again, for our listeners, the these tubes are hanging vertically, suspended mm-hmm. vertically in the space. And so in advance of coming here, you've said now that uh, mm-hmm. When you get here, you're able to determine sort of the scaling of um, sort of how much, so the minimum and the maximum that a valve can open or close. Uh, yeah. But I'm wondering in terms of um, in terms of where in the space each Merlotone is placed, uh, mm-hmm. do you wait until you're in the space? Do you hear how, say, three of them are interacting with each other before you place a fourth one? Um, does the room, do the room modes have anything to do with it? Like, how are you, can you maybe describe your process as you're in the midst of installing these tubes in the space? Yes. We start from a point like, like, uh, for instance, where the longer, longest pipes have to hang, I guess will be quite obvious because what, what I think the space is like that, not with a, with a, with a roof, with an angle. That's what I understood. Yes, that's right. So we probably would hang first the two longest pipes, okay. which are, are far out the longest, and then do a kind of distribution, I think a bit uh, in pairs, like two with similar lengths, one more in the left of the space, one more in the right. I normally hang the seven pipes first, and if I don't like it, I will change, but not like two, then three, then four, right. then five. But Already, when hanging, you have, of course, a kind of concept uh, which about uh, which pipes should be near to each other and which not. Hmm. How's that changed over the past three years? Uh, I think the space itself is very important. The, right. the dimensions of the space. I think we work a lot with instinct, after all. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the aesthetics of the space, all I mean, is also important. Practical issues like height. But we also always want also that the work has something exciting just in a visual way. So it's, it's a lot of compromises between aesthetics, uh, sound, practical issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more instinct than science after all. I think the background of the whole system technically is really high tech, but the final touch is a lot of instinct and experience. I would think also in the software as well, there are there must be leaps that you're taking that are based on instinct. Yes. Well, for instance, something that is not correct in the software is that if you want to have this uh, this cycle feeling about the time it takes, uh, it's actually the day and night cycle. It's not how long it takes to go around the sun, but that they are turning themselves. Um, This should be, of course, just a kind of sine wave and not with any dynamics extra but maybe you heard it already on on the on the website uh, what we do is each time when a cycle starts we do one little peak 
So apart from this endless going up and down, you also hear a kind of room. Mm -hmm. So that's something that works very nice. But of course, it's not correct if you would just map their day and night cycles. There is not just just for each when each day starts again an extra little accent. So there are, there are little details that that are subjective addition, mm -hmm. and then maybe there will come up others. But I, the way it was in Australia, I was very happy with. So I, that will be at least a starting point. What was the difference in Australia? Well, in the different, well, that was the first performance with this day and night cycles. Oh, I see. The size of size of the planets, and it worked very well. I did a bit of testing in in our own studio. But the space in Australia was much better. So often in the studio, you can just do technical tests and get a kind of feeling of it will work. But then in the real space, hopefully it's much more exciting. Usually it is much more exciting than our studio. We have a big studio, but what the acoustics are not exciting at all. So we mm. always work enormously very long on the work to make it sound good in their studio and mm. if we go to another place usually it's so much better <laughs> oh that must be a joy to go to all the different spaces um yes could you describe some of the other spaces where the merlotones have been installed well the first two times was in 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 2012 it was commissioned by a very big space in holland an enormous industrial hall but we got a kind of private space in there with our own walls so it, it didn't have that much reverb. Um, it was high with, with this kind of lot of glass up, you know, this kind of industrial halls with, with roof, with an angle, with glass. I don't yeah. know. There, that was quite aggressive in a way, the, the acoustics there. And the, it was uh, 12 pipes and also a bit wider pipes than, than the, the later version in... Mm -hmm. In Australia and in 2012 we also did a first test with only five or six pipes also in a kind of industrial place in Valencia and there it was very basic but uh, the, the people were excited but there was there it was really only six pipes that that pap and another pap <laughs> this so it was very different I mean you have the pipes you have the membranes and you have air but you can do so many different things and I think gradually we uh, uh, we have been growing into this much more very slow language that that uh, that uh, was in in Australia for the first time and will be it will be now the, the second time it has been also in in Holland in 2013 that was maybe a kind of um, um, in between the, the the more aggressive uh, with also a kind of staccato short sounds. To this very slow language that 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 uh, that we developed for Australia, I think in Toronto it will be quite similar to Australia, but the acoustics of the place will be very important, mm -hmm. and also the compressor I get because if you have a really powerful compressor, then you can then you have an enormous range of possibilities, then you can maybe say, well, we will not use all its power because it will be too loud. If you if you have a compressor just strong enough, then you and then you take you take the maximum out of it, but then you cannot choose. You just make it as loud as possible. Anyway, it should be quite loud. It's really you have to be uh, it has to be around you like a kind of space actually, the mm -hmm. sound. 
something like that, being in a cloud. And this is, this is really interesting, uh, Peter. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, so to, to experience it is its own thing. And yet I see that online you have recordings and you have photography of the, uh, of the Merlotones in place. And you mentioned uh, earlier that, uh, that you also work in your studio. So if we can talk a little bit about documentation for a moment, mm-hmm. is this something I'm always interested in about how people choose to represent their works outside of their context? Um, you know, how, how, do you, uh, how do you record Merlotones? Um, and what are your thoughts in terms of how it could be presented online? Um, mm-hmm. So that when people are curious about your work, if they wanted to look at it ahead of time, I mean, how do you sort of navigate that problem, I guess? Yeah, that's it's it's a difficult problem. Sure. Um, we want to make. I mean, it's not an our our video registration is not an artwork. It's just a representation, right? Of giving you a feeling of what it could be, not right. So I mean, it's also a compromise. But we sure. we think it's more important to try to respect the language as much as possible of the work, hmm. and to make a kind of fleshy video clip. So usually right. are the things you will find on our website are very slow to what people are used to nowadays. <laughs> I mean, people are so used to see very, something edited very quickly with some background sound. Which may, we cannot put out any other sounds below the work because the sound is the work. So, right. I mean, it's it's a question of uh, of of, of uh, trying to. To explain what's it about, and also to to transfer something of 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 the feeling that you could have being there, but I mean, you, I, mean I think for this work it's really interesting to be there maybe fifteen minutes, but the video mm. on our website is I think about five, right? And that's already quite long for nowadays. If people are used <laughs> to look to a video about one work, so it's also a compromise. But we try to make good sound recordings. We try to do as much as possible of life with what you see and what you hear, but I mean that's not always necessary because you don't see it. So we want to be have it, it should be at least a good soundtrack uh, with with not too many edits because then you lose already uh, much about its its own language. And then then the image, if you're lucky and you have funny public, it's always nice to have, like, for instance, uh, when you have those deck chairs and you see people going in, lying there. Right. That's that's much more interesting to see at a video uh, than only the pipes. So right. it's a kind of, it's a, of course, it's a kind of promotion film, but it should be a, a fair promotion film in right. a way. Right, and and I I think it's it's you I think you raise a really interesting point. I mean, the point at which you start recording and then stop recording, or the point at which you clip the five minutes however out of however much that you used, and you're you're not yes. using these quick edits. When I think about this piece that you're describing, there are no quick edits inherent in the piece, right? It's this it's this endurance piece that if I wanted to, I could sit there for fifteen minutes, or I could sit there. I'm assuming I could sit there for longer. I'm assuming yeah. that you've probably sat there for very long, um, and I'm sure that you've had other people in various times throughout the past several years come in and experience extended listening sessions with the Merlotones. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that it's, I'm glad, I mean, I'm excited to hear you say when you say, talk about your documentation, that it's it's reflective of this, that it's not these quick cuts, because that would not be, as you said, wouldn't be true to the piece. Yes. Um, yeah. And you, we would also miss the point. I mean, right. then then you 
you get something else than you would expect if you see a very flashy fast right. video sure. and then these slow <laughs> pipes <laughs> come into your space <laughs> so sure. um so i noticed that you, you you had done a piece with the bass clarinet player uh, kristen martins mm-hmm. um uh and how does when you first started with the Merlotones, was it intended to be something that musicians could play with? Um, and perhaps I'm not using the right word, intention there. Uh, but had you, yes, but perhaps had you even had you imagined that it would be something that, um, beyond being a receiver, someone as just as a listener, that it's something that a musician could then interact with? Yeah, I think in all our works, it's possible, but we we always try to encourage the, the musicians not to be too expressive sure because I think I mean it's also a kind of paradox you make a machine <laughs> that's that's interesting without people yes but if a, a, a human being can indeed um, add something that we do not bring so uh, with the performance of Krista which was a very spontaneous thing um, she walked around in space so she has, of course, her own dynamics, but the pipes, for instance, they cannot move in space. Right. They they can get uh, louder and softer. So uh, I just said to her, uh, try to be a kind of eighth pipe, and you can walk around in the space and 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 listen to the pipes, and and that was it, more or less. And it worked very nicely, um, for a large part, because of her. In in uh, in NASA, we uh, uh, Glenn Hall will play with the work, and I think I already told to him uh, the re- I maybe uh, will give some uh, directions about what you can do, but it will it will be a kind of theater uh, rehearsal. We put it on, you play, and then we say this works, it doesn't work, and each time when he plays, it may be different, but uh, it's important. It's important that that the player, in a way, respects the work, and then makes the best of it with with his or her own skills. And it's an interesting um, interaction. He has been listening also to these same recordings, and we've been talking about instruments because he plays many different instruments. Bass, clarinet is probably the most appropriate because it has a bit the same spectre. You can make bit similar sounds with the bass clarinet to this a bit wild flapping sounds of our membranes but he said we can also try uh, bass flute um, which is much sweeter yeah I think it's interesting but uh, um, maybe it's uh, not loud enough and uh, and we talked also about maybe to amplify or not the flute but I, I, I wouldn't like to amplify the speakers and, and Microphones and all this kind of stuff. So, right. um, I, I think it's interesting to try also other instruments.
You're listening to Naza's Making Waves on WGXC. That was an excerpt from Bos and Simona's Mirlatone's performance in Perth. And prior to that, you heard an interview between myself and Peter Bos. And now I bring you to the second half of our show, my conversation with composer Stephanie Moore. I was doing a bit of looking into the works that you have coming up at our Sound Travels concert on yeah. August 22nd. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the Lunar Cycle, which is the three-movement work. Yeah. And the three pieces are L-Cross 2009-10-09. Uh, this, and another movement is... I'm probably not saying this in the right order. It, does it go plein lune, then, yeah. to, then to in the green... In, in the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon, yeah. which is for double bass and fixed media. Yeah. And the final one is L-Cross 2009-10-09. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Oh, cool. I like those titles a lot. Thanks. <laughs> I, I have, uh, I mean, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with titles. Do you like those titles? I do, and I do give titles a lot of thought. Yeah. Eh? Um, yeah, Plenlun, uh, I mean, it was just the obvious title for the piece because uh, it means full moon and uh, the piece is inspired by werewolfism or lycanthropy. So that one was fairly obvious for me. Uh, the second one is inspired by the children's story, Goodnight Moon. Oh, yeah. By Margaret Wise Brown. Um, and I didn't, I didn't want to use the same title as the book. And actually, I don't think I would have had permission to do it anyway uh so i just chose the first line Mm -hmm. from from the story which yeah also conveys uh, a sort of atmosphere maybe or something sort of surrealist (laughs) and then and then the last title has to do with um an event that took place in october 2009 where nasa not NASA. <laughs> I get that mistake too all yeah. the time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the U.S. Yeah, Aeronautical Agency right. uh, organized um, what was sensationally called at the time a moon bombing. Um, but, well, in fact, they exploded two rockets into the Cavius crater of the moon on its dark side. And the rocket... In fact, I think it was one main rocket and a companion one, and the main one was called L-Cross. And then I just added the date of the event to the title of the work, of the movement.
You just heard Stephanie Moore's L Cross 2009 10 09. It's the third movement of her piece Lunar Cycle, which will be uh, performed on August 22nd, 2015, at 7 30 p.m. at our Sound Travels Festival concert. My name is Michael Palumbo, and you're listening to Making Waves. And now back to my conversation with Stephanie. You know, I reflect on Goodnight Moon as my, one of my favorite childhood stories. Um, can you tell me about your relationship to the story Goodnight Moon? I, I know that it, it it's a bit of an offshoot from this piece, but I'm just sort of curious about about that. Yeah, like you, it was a story I was read when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, in fact, I think it was also read to my mom, and I had her version of the book, her edition, because it was published in 1947, just after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And I think it's as much the pictures as the text uh, that make the story, though, of course, for my piece, there won't be a visual element. Um, but those pictures capture some kind of ambiance. And, and I guess I'm trying to explore sort of the psychological effect of nighttime and, and the nocturnal, the notion of a nocturnal world that we become aware of as children hmm. that exists, but we don't really know what it is. Mm-hmm. And we might have different types of relationships with that. Maybe we're curious, maybe we're afraid. Um, but, you know, in the story, uh, well, it's actually a rabbit, anthropomorph- or anthrom- oh my goodness, anthropomorphology. Uh, right, yeah. Don't use that word, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Again, yeah, it's a story uh, with this young rabbit who is... Uh, bidding goodnight to all of the objects in his room. And mm-hmm. it's almost like those, you know, he's bidding them goodnight and liberating them to become what they might in the nighttime after he's asleep. And maybe exploring like that space between fully being fully conscious and then slowly, you know, lapsing into sleep. And this description of the story and your relationship to it is that um, was that evoked through the process of writing this piece or did you have a conceit before you began or uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth but I'm curious if you could speak to that yeah um, this is although the movement occurs second in the cycle Mm -hmm. um, I'm composing it last and hmm. and I have conceived of it last as well. Hmm. Um, I already had the other two ideas for the, the one to do with werewolfism and the one to do with the moon bombing. And so this I was searching for an idea that would complement the other two movements. And that I knew I wanted to explore a more reverent attitude towards the moon and and something fundamental to all people, all humans. Um, and somehow the, I, the idea of a text and the idea of Goodnight Moon just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. And I guess later on, I discovered also the music of Francis Domon, who actually I um, had a 
a chance to meet at the the Thais Symposium in 2013. Right, two years ago, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'd, I'd taken a course with uh, Robert Normando right. on, on, his, on his body of work when I was a student at University of Montreal. Yeah. And uh, so I was already familiar, but it was really neat to meet him in person, to hear him diffuse his works. Mm-hmm. And in particular, um, his his uh, work, Forêt Profonde, um, is, is somewhat of an inspiration for this piece. So the idea of taking a text, but also taking recorded sounds, some synthesized sounds, um, and then what I'm doing differently is also having a live instrument, a double bass. Right, and there's a live instrument in Pleine Lune as well, correct? Yeah, the same one, the double bass. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I remember from uh, Francis' uh, performance, I, I was sitting right behind him, and oh, it was so cool to think about, you know, for decades he's been diffusing, right? Yeah. I, you, you know, and, and, and just seeing him do that um, was very special. Mm-hmm, a real master. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. Um, so I'm I'm curious about, with the piece L Cross 2009-10-09, I saw that it premiered at the New York City Electroacoustic Music Festival. Yes. And uh, and that's a stereo piece. Did you diffuse that at the? I did. Right. Yeah, I did a fader diffusion. They had eight speakers in the the hall. Right. Um, it was at the Abron Arts Center, which is in the Lower East Side, and uh, yeah, a medium sized. Well, small to medium-sized hall, mm-hmm. um, and I did a fader diffusion. The piece actually, there was an initial version. To me, it was more of an etude that I did during my master's studies, and I presented that earlier version at a University of Montreal uh, Electrobuzz concert. Right. I saw on your website that it it was. The, this is a revised version. Is that what it's yeah, referring to? That's right. Okay, yeah. great. So, but you're right. The revised version. I, I just finished recently and yeah I presented it um just about just 10 12 days ago mm-hmm. at uh, yeah congrats thanks yeah you're welcome yeah right and um and so what was the did you receive feedback did you talk to anybody or or maybe I would also be curious about presenting that piece in the New York yeah because I I spoke with Peter Bose recently about how he has presented this piece that he's doing this summer in multiple instances and how it changes with each iteration. And I'm curious, and, and given that it's a very different space, but based on that performance, I mean, what are your considerations for when you come to Ties in August? Yeah, I, well, I know something that will be quite different is the diffusion system, because mm-hmm. Darren was showing me the sensor that I'll have on my hand, right. which will move the sound around the room in a much different way than using faders. Right. Um, and I might, because it's a fresh version of the piece, there's some minor things I might be tweaking over the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, there's a it's a fairly active piece. Um, what does that mean I'm, when you say that? Uh, there's a lot of uh, foreground activity mm. and. Uh, impacts um, and energy. I guess that was one comment I had after the premiere in New York was, uh, yeah, that it was a very, it was a powerful piece. And, uh, and actually the, yeah, the person was saying that it, you know, she was surprised that I was presenting that. I guess her impression of me was not 
that I would produce a, <laughs> a powerful, uh, you know, piece with lots of impacts about an exploding rocket or something. But I, you know, what can I say? It was also like hearing about that event so long ago and now 2009, um, when I'd read about it, it was actually the poetic descriptions on the NASA site, which I found mm. inspiring, like really surprisingly poetic, talking about grains of water ice being lofted into the sunlight and the vacuum of space and <laughs> or I don't know, lunar soil within shadowy craters and just wow. a, a lot of stuff that I, yeah, yeah it was very, had lots of imagery right. and um, I guess the suggestion of chemical processes as well. So those, I don't know, it, I had a very strong visual image after reading that text, which stayed with me all this all this time. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was looking to translate into music. And if it's about an exploding rocket, well, <laughs> so be it. You know? Right, sure. Uh, and I mean, certainly from a distance, it can look quite beautiful, right? I, I That's a yeah. very delightful yeah. description. Is that is that NASA, not NASA, is that NASA... I caught myself. <laughs> is yeah. that yeah? Is that NASA um, article? Is it available still? Do you know? Oh yeah, I think so. And in fact, cool. I think in my program note, I uh, I gave the link to it. It's like right. it's in an archive now, but right. um, and there have been other articles that have been published about the event since. And there's a great long thing in Science Magazine the following year. But uh, but that original article, it's it's short, and and yeah, I think I included the link in my program note. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a bit lifted a plume of material ten miles high uh, <laughs> into the yeah I, into space. You know, it reminds me of reading Godel Escherbach by uh, Douglas Hofstadter, and I remember the very first, like the introduction to the book. It was the first time I had read sort of sort of scientific or sort of, I guess academic some some kind of more serious writing. Ah, I don't know how to put it. I was in high school. I'd never read anything like it, right? And yeah. and and I remember that he was using exclamation marks to describe his joy with what he was talking about, you know? Mm. Uh and and it it's delightful to think that someone at NASA is is just in love with what they encounter, you know? Yeah. Um yeah. that that some that anybody can come along and be inspired by what is otherwise a very violent and in in sort of the sort of terrestrial um, instance of an explosion, it, it's at a very violent association, mm -hmm. right? And yet, in this case, you know, it's a, for well, in your case, it uh, inspired this work. Yeah. Nonetheless, yeah, nature is beautiful, yeah, <laughs> and yes. we don't we never cease to marvel at it. Indeed. In spite of what our these other intentions were. Right. Right. Now, speaking of intentions, I'm curious, uh, I'd like to come back to, um, in the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon, and uh, and I guess the moon over the, over the arc of the work. Um, with, your t with respect to titles, I was thinking about how, so in, in sort of recent popular culture, Game of Thrones fans, in terms of the book, there's always that debate between people who've read a book and see the movie or see the TV show. You should read the book first. You should read the movie first. The movie started making these divert, uh, started to divert, or the show started to divert in a different direction from the book, and it kind of made this nice sort of parody, um, yeah. where it was all of a sudden now 
people who had read uh, had watched the show kind of had kind of an evenness and and the reason that I'm illustrating this is I'm sort of curious about as we began this interview you were explaining more and more about your relationship to Goodnight Moon and yeah. I'm wondering for those that have never read Goodnight Moon <laughs> would you recommend that they read it and then listen to your piece would you rather they listen to your piece and then read it and not to say that there's even a right or wrong but would you rather listen to your piece and not having read Goodnight Moon? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm just sort of curious yeah. about that. Um, yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. The text will be present. Like, it will be narrated throughout the work. Oh, neat. So, yeah. So even if someone hasn't read it, they will discover mm -hmm. what it is. <clears throat> uh, so I, I, th I think... It, yeah, it, and whether you are familiar with it, whether or whether you're not, and then afterwards you're interested in seeing what it looks like in book format and with the pictures, mm -hmm. I, I would hope that either way it would be an interesting experience. And I think it will be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, I suppose people who are already familiar with it will have maybe some preconceptions or not. Sure. Uh, mind you, when you're sitting in the dark with no visuals mm. and, you know, a double mm. bass, and I mean, it's already taking the, you know, the text way out of its context. Originally. Sure. Um, yeah. And so, and the text, yeah, it will be narrated. It, I mean, it will be present and it's an interesting challenge. Actually, it's the first time in, I'm working with recorded text in an acousmatic work mm -hmm. in my instrumental composition especially during my undergrad I did a lot of text setting yeah I saw I, that yeah and I yeah. and I really enjoyed that and and even in my um during my master's I wrote a piece for children's choir uh so I'm used to vocal settings of text but but using text differently and more in a narrated form with this work is new and then you know handling that with a live instrument and with recorded sound it's an interesting juggling mm -hmm. match you know to see what i'm going to bring forward at what point and why uh yeah i'm still in that process <laughs> yeah. you've mentioned uh text setting a couple of times and I, I don't know what that i don't know what that is i'd love to know um would you mind explaining that a little yeah sure uh so that's a, a case, I guess, of um, if, if one knows one is going to write for voice mm -hmm. uh, for a singer and then you need to give them something to sing <laughs> or I mean, it can or sometimes you have a text in mind that you decide you'd like to uh, set to music. Okay. And often it, that was the case for me. Um, initially, I was uh Way back in, in my undergrad, I was very taken with Anne Michaels' poetry. She's a, a Toronto-based author who wrote fugitive pieces, among other novels. And uh, and so I was really taken with her poetry and and chose excerpts to to um, give melody to, mm. so that a singer could sing this text. So the could you maybe describe it in terms of. Uh, sort of in, in a very rough sense, like what, from start to finish, what, what the process of text setting would be in, in your compositional process? So so I would choose uh, a text, a, often a poem that I found inspiring, 
And in reading it aloud to myself, I would get a sense of its rhythm and perhaps the natural inflections, where the natural uh, voice inflections take place, rises and falls in the line. And, and with that awareness, um, create a melody that likely would follow or respect the inflections and stresses of the voice. But then you have freedom to to exaggerate or to or maybe go against that if mm-hmm. if, if need be. Um, you, you need to think about what words are most important and that you want to highlight in the music. Of course, there's the possibility of repeating lines of a poem, repeating uh, yeah, and repeating certain words for emphasis. So there's a lot of creativity in, mm-hmm. and and you sort of add your own personal interpretation of the poem right. well, depending I'm... on what melody you create and how you use the text and how you order it, what form you give to the piece. Yeah, and it you know it's uh, thank you for that. Thank you for describing that. Um it you know it 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 reminds me of the same or similar process in which I would go and make a sound collage, right? I have a source material. Um, I choose where to place it, uh, if I want to repeat things or, um, basically I choose how to make meaning with the given source material. Is that an appropriate, uh, sort of comparison? Um, yeah. I mean, mean, words, words though are, are concrete, you know, whereas source material is more abstract, but, but yeah, I think there's a similarity. Well, you, uh, you don't have to agree with me, actually. I, I appreciate you making that distinction, right? Like, I don't have to be right, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Yeah, well, text is, it's yeah, it's particular, because that's the only, like, um, music without text is, is, is abstract. It's purely abstract. Mm, I guess in acousmatic medium or the music concrete medium, we can choose recorded sounds that we can immediately identify. That's water, that's uh, ice, that's a cat meowing, that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then give, create a logic or a story or meaning through sounds that people recognize. But words, you know, we can actually convey exactly what we're trying to express with words so because yeah um sometimes i've wondered about like wanting to you know how can one make music politically meaningful or Mm. engaged if you don't have text i mean with songs you know political songs there can be something very clear in the meaning but if there's no words then um yeah then it's much more difficult um i suppose l cross you know there's it's a little bit of me trying to not make a political statement but convey something politically just by taking this event as an inspiration and trying to make something out of it and would you share what that political 
uh, or or partly political statement maybe in, in your in your experience or your mind? Uh, well, uh, I was, I mean, I found the event distressing, and most people mm. don't even know that it took place. And in fact, the majority, in fact, almost everybody I've described the event to are sort of shocked and surprised and didn't know that it happened. <laughs> so, so on one level, it's just making people aware that this did happen, and then. Uh, it doesn't, since, you know, Ramon ha has been a part of our solar system since the beginning of time and, you know, all humans on Earth have seen it and, you know, been <laughs> affected by it since the beginning of time. It just seems crazy that one small group with a lot of power can make a decision like this to perpetrate an action which could potentially damage the moon. Yeah. But I'm not trying. I'm not trying to. Con I mean, I think also in one of I. I'm not sure if I put it in the program note for the upcoming concert, but in the one for New York, I just left it open. You know, what do we think and how do we feel about this? I'm not telling anyone what to think, but just raising awareness. That's all. Yeah. Well, you know, I appreciate you sharing that because it it's certainly making me or helping me to see a different perspective. I mean, just ten minutes ago, we were talking about the NASA article talking about how beautiful it was, and and indeed, I'm sure to look at it, it must have been sublime. You know. Um, yeah. But but there is this. There are other perspectives to be shared and. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, firing a rocket at the moon, that's very, hmm. and who said, I mean, who said, okay, who said yes, you know, <laughs> I wonder, yeah. you know, who has the power to say yes to that? Um, yeah, and should it be just a select group of people who have the ability to decide? Right, yeah. Um, I did think, um, just a few minutes ago, mm -hmm. When you'd asked me the question about the audible woman, mm -hmm. um, there is perhaps one relationship sure. to that, um, it, to my composing currently, and particularly, sorry, particularly with the second movement of the work, mm -hmm. because um, at that time I was first introduced to radio art, mm. and I attended the NASA conference, um, Radio Without Boundaries. Huh. In back in 2005, and so my I, I've always had a side interest in radio art. Um, I grew up with the radio on at home, CBC all the time. My mother actually was a journalist for CBC Radio. Oh wow! Yeah, for a time, uh, and uh, yeah, so I um, have had a you know a background interest in radio art and. And I know, like Francis Daumont, when he was mm -hmm. uh, composing works like um, in his Cycle des Profondeurs, which Fort um, et Profonde is one movement. So he, there is a text that's being narrated, but I know he had to be aware of not using too much text. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I, with the second movement, I, I do, I am conscious of radio art and not and wanting, but want, not wanting to make the piece in this circumstance radio art, but making it um, a piece with text. 
And you can kind of get around that by not using too much text. Hmm. And, uh, and so this children's story has, you know, one sentence per page or a few couple phrases per page. So Hmm. actually it spaces out quite nicely. You know, I, I, it's funny. I never, I never considered that about children's stories. I always assumed, I guess it was for beginner, the thought of not, not having too much to read, but but really, yeah. it provides a tremendous amount of space for the imagination. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, that's right. And and you open the book, and there's this beautiful picture of a great big room right. with lots of detail, and all the objects that are mentioned through the book are are in in the room. But as you turn the pages, like they move around, and they're in different places. So that's fun for kids too. But yeah, it's as much just yeah, picture books are you know, uh, invite you into their world with a few choice, you know, a few suggestions of phrases Mm. with, again, with this movement inspired by the text of good night moon. Yeah. There will be multiple layers and because the, when the text is present, it is in the foreground, but, but there's layers of meaning going on behind it. And, uh, I don't know, an activity perhaps representing our subconscious or unconscious or I don't know. <laughs> I'm working it out right now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I appreciate you, you sharing that with me as you're working it out, you know. I, um, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, you know, you don't, I don't know that it's necessary to have the answer, you know, all, all at once. Yeah. I mean... I would think, given that El Cross was presented, you know, earlier la- uh, or last month, you know, uh, and it's going to be presented in August, it may, you know, you may be presenting it again, and so this you'll go through similar or a different kind of struggle or 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 considerations for what it means to you then, or even what it means to you tomorrow, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could talk about this tomorrow, and it might, it might. I'm sure it would go in very different directions, you know. And it's interesting to have other people's perspective because you can think that what you're creating will be perceived a certain way or you have your intentions Mm -hmm. when you've created it, but then to hear what other people are perceiving is always fascinating. Certainly, yeah. And I guess that's where having text to carry your political um, curiosities or intents or questions is particularly salient because you can at least trust that um that there may be a slightly narrower uh number of possibilities for interpretation i suppose that's right yeah 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 Yeah. um well yeah this was great i mean i i'm getting the feeling that that maybe we'll we'll put this on pause and and i would look forward to chatting with you again soon um and uh and thank you oh you're welcome yeah this was my pleasure Great. Yeah, mine too. This was really fun. And thank um, you very much to, to NASA for giving me the opportunity to, to present not just this brand new movement, but all three. Like it's been, you know, I've had this idea for a long time brewing in the back of my mind. And so I'm really thrilled to have the chance to, yeah, to present all three movements together. Oh, that's wonderful. That's really great. Well, yeah, I, on behalf of, of everyone here, you're welcome, I guess, but it's, it has <laughs> yeah. nothing to do with me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Making Waves. Join on the second Saturday each month on WGXC. To find out more about new adventures in sound art, go to nasa.ca.
That is N A I S A dot C A.